Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 5. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him heard the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hands were restored. So we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, which is the second book of the New Testament, uh, to take uh, an up-close and uh, personal look at really the life of Jesus. We're in the Gospel of Mark. We're pressing into the Gospel of Mark to look at the life of Jesus, to to see who the real Jesus is. That's what we've been saying. We're looking through Mark to see who the real Jesus is, and what we're learning is that he's better. He's better than the assumptions that we make about him. Jesus is better than the assumptions that people make about him. Uh, and so that's what we're, we're digging into as we, as we study the Gospel of Mark. The, the other day, I was uh, reading sort of this old uh, 19th century storybook to Geneva, our three-year-old daughter. And uh, if you don't know, children's stories back then, like over 100 years ago, uh, they, were, they were pretty gnarly, right? Uh, they are kind of gnarly. They were sometimes dark sometimes violent, and uh, I didn't get that memo before I started like, already reading this story to her. Uh, and this story is, is wild. This story is, is that I, I read to her. It, it was about a ballerina, and, and my daughter wants to be a ballerina. She is a ballerina. Uh, but she, uh, in this story, I, I just saw a ballerina on the cover of this, this chapter, and so I was like, oh, I'm going to read this story. And in the story, there's this little dancer girl this wannabe prima ballerina, and she's got her eyes on these fancy dance shoes, these really fancy dance shoes. Every time she walks by the shoe store, she sees them in the window, and she begs her mom uh, to buy them, but her mom won't won't let her get them. But because her mom happens to be blind, this little girl is able to find a sneaky way to trick her mom into buying these shoes. And what happens is once this little girl puts on the shoes for the first time, remember I'm reading this to my three-year-old, uh, and she puts on the shoes for the first time, she like literally can't take them off. I'm not saying like she figur- figuratively can't take them off, like she actually can't take them off because the shoes come to life. They get possessed and they make her dance and dance, which she loves at first, but they make her dance for days and throughout the night. And I'm wondering as I'm reading this story, like where's this story going? And I've got my three-year-old on our lap. And at the end of the story, this little girl eventually dies of exhaustion. <laughs> punishment from God, from the man upstairs, for tricking her blind mom. That's the big moral of the story. And I finished this story, and I'm like, what is this? We're not reading this again, right? 
And I'm all worried that I just scarred my three-year-old daughter for life. And so I look her in the eye. I'm trying to gauge like what she's thinking. I'm like, sweetie, what, 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 are, you, what are you thinking right now? Uh, and she goes, dad, I want those shoes. <laughs> she's like, I want those shoes, dad. She missed the whole point of that story, right? She missed the point of that whole story, which I was obviously okay with in this situation. But usually, in grown-up world, you don't want to miss the point. You don't want to miss the point of the story in the real world, especially when it comes to really important things and really important people like Jesus. When it comes to getting to know the real Jesus, you definitely don't want to miss the point of who he is. You don't want to miss the point of what he teaches. And our text this morning is about making sure that you don't miss the point of who Jesus is and what he came to do. His critics, as we see in this text, they, they miss the point. But we're going to learn by God's grace from their mistake. And so this morning, we'll see how Jesus is the truer and he's the better and the only way to God. His critics, the Pharisees, they don't get that. You see, but Jesus is teaching that salvation is by grace. You can't control it. You can only rest in it. And so we're going to unpack three points in the text this morning. First, we're going to look at the purpose of Sabbath rest. Secondly, we're going to look at the problem with religion. And lastly, we're going to look at the reality of Jesus. If you can think of a P word for that three, third one, let me know, because I couldn't... Uh, all night long. <laughs> so the purpose of Sabbath rest, the problem with religion, and the reality of Jesus. Let's look at that first one. The purpose of Sabbath rest. Read with me beginning in verse 23. It says, One Sabbath, which is Saturday, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, they said to Jesus, Look, why are they, your disciples, doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And so what we see here is Jesus and his disciples, which is his followers, they're traveling from one place to the next. They're passing through these grain fields, and at this point, the disciples, they've got the munchies, right? They've got the munchies. They're hungry. And so they start plucking grain. They're breaking it open. They're chowing down, and someone's not happy about that, right? The Pharisees are not happy about this. We see Jesus' critics, the Pharisees, they confront him and they say, hey, Jesus, what's going on here? Your disciples, they're, they're breaking the Sabbath law. Like, are, are they allowed to do that now? And so there's clearly a controversy here in this passage. And if we want to fully understand what's happening as the scene unfolds, then we need to sort of pump the brakes right here and ask, what is the deal with the Sabbath? What's the deal with the Sabbath? Why was this so important? And the Sabbath, the scriptures tell us in the Old Testament, is really simply just a God-given day of rest. It's a God-given day of rest. It's, it's also one of the big ten, right? It's a f number four of the ten commandments where God commands his people to rest. It's a, it's a gift that he gives to indulge his children, to make sure that they're, they not only rest from their work, but they rest in him. They actively rest in him. 
Look at the commandment as the Lord gave it to Moses in, in, in Exodus 20. In verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, really quick right there. This is fascinating language. This is fascinating language because other commandments just say, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. But with the Sabbath, the command is, remember. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy, which is to say, dedicate it, set it apart. This is a special day, a special rhythm that God gives for his people. And let's read, continue in verse 9 where he says, In six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it, on that seventh day, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the only commandment that God explicitly ties to his work of creation. It says in six days, God created all things. He set the universe into motion. And on the seventh day, he, he stopped and he rested. And that's an interesting statement, right? Like, what does it mean God rested? Like, was he tired? Was he exhausted? Did he need to sort of wind down after a long work week? Did he need to kick his feet up, turn on the TV, and catch up on his latest Hulu binge? Like, obviously, no. God's clearly more of a Netflix guy, right? But seriously, like when the scriptures say God rested on the seventh day, what it's not about is it's not about him needing to rest. It's about him choosing to put his work, his labor, to rest. He doesn't need to rest. He actively chooses to put his work to rest. And so it says when the Lord stepped back, he observed his masterpiece. He observed his creation. And the scriptures say that he saw that it was good. And so God rested from his work as if to say, on this day, on this day, I'm acknowledging that I'm satisfied in the work that I've done. I'm going to just let it be. I'm going to let it spin into motion to grow and do what it was created to do. That's what Sabbath is. That's what Sabbath is. It's resting from our work by putting our work to rest. By putting our work to rest. It's the discipline of saying, you know, this project that I've worked on, these things that I've labored over, I will now choose to rest from them. I will set aside time for, for the Lord. I'll set aside time for the Lord our God, for rest, for worship, and to just trust Him to provide. To trust Him to provide from the fruit of my labors. And man, think about how countercultural that is. Think about how counterintuitive that is for, for us in this culture. And in this day, like our culture is this westernized, suburban, middle-class culture where we actually get rewarded for busyness. We get rewarded for busyness, for frenetic activity. We champion that. Our culture champions that. One of the things that you learn, though, the older that you get, 
is that this activity never ends, right? The older you get, you realize that this activity, this busyness, will, you'll never run out of things to do. You guys remember when you, like when you were in high school, and, you're, and we're all thinking when we're in high school, we're thinking like, oh, life is so hard, right? Life is so hard. We've got the homework, the parents, the social pressure. There's just so much to bear, right? Like, I can't wait to get through this so I can start living that easy life, right? And then you get to college, and you're like, oh, this is so hard. You got more homework, you've got papers, you've got deadlines, and you've added debt. And then you start, and then if you, you start thinking, you know, your career is the golden ticket out, but the responsibilities just start to pile on. And if you start thinking families, when things start to settle down, then man, you're in for a big surprise, right? Like you'll see, that, you'll see what I'm talking about when your kid's like poking your eye every morning at, at 3 a.m. Uh, I mean, I love my kids. I love my family. But there's always work to do. Right? That's the point. Like when it, Whether it's homework and essays or diapers and taxes, your task list just doesn't end. It just changes and it evolves. There's always work to do, but that's precisely why we need, we're designed for these regular rhythms of rest, of Sabbath rest. We need that. Man, this, this text, this sermon... It's hard for me because I'm bad at this. I'm bad at this. Like I get anxious when I'm not working, when I'm not putting my, my mind down, my, my head down, and, and doing work. But in Psalm 46, the Lord gives us this needed exhortation. He says, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you did that? Normally when it's time for us to like be still, when we have a still moment, we pull our phones out, right? We pull our phones out, or we start, we start planning, we start thinking and working about the next thing we have to do. When was the last time you just sat in stillness before the Lord your God, your maker, your sustainer, where you removed yourself from the blizzard of constant activity of to-dos to just move into God's presence and just rest there. Not too long ago, I ran across a story about these farmers in Canada and the Midwest and, and this, this article that mentioned how these farmers in that region up in, in, in the Midwest and just north of there in Canada, the farmers in this region, they, they have to be like extra careful during blizzard season because it just gets bad. It gets really bad there. And so like a group of meteorologists kind of gave out this, 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 this warning announcement to all the farmers in the area. And these meteorologists, they gave them helpful advice. They said, you know, when a, when a blizzard season is approaching, when you see the eye of the storm like coming in, when blizzard's approaching, you farmers, what you should do is grab a long piece of rope and tie it from your house to the barn out back so that when you go out to work to feed the animals, you won't get lost in the blinding snow because when the winds start to rage and the blizzards is just so thick, like, like the snow gets so thick that you can't even see your own hands. That's how bad it is. And you'll have no way to know where you're going. At that point, you need, you need this rope. And so like some farmers would literally like freeze to death. They would literally freeze 
to death because they get lost in their own backyards just wandering around in circles because they have no idea which way that they're going. The wind's pushing against them, and so they think they're going in a straight line, but they're just going in circles, and they die in their own yards because they don't have a lifeline. These meteorologists are saying, you know, like, that's why you need a rope. It's literal. It's a literal lifeline. And that's what Sabbath rest is like. That's what rhythms of rest are like. It's a rope that God provides to help us to find our way back home, to find our way home from our work, to give, to bring us to a place that is, is rooted and centered on him. Augustine, early church father, said, this famous quote of his, he says in this prayer, Lord, you made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. That's the heartbeat of rest. That's the heartbeat of Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees, though, the Pharisees, they, they missed the whole point of the Sabbath. The Pharisees missed the whole point of the Sabbath. The Lord said, remember to rest from your work. And these Pharisees, they said, all right, let's create a rule book to define the work that we won't do. And if any of you follow it, then you're in. And if you don't, then, then, then you're out. And the irony is that they just end up missing the whole heart of the Sabbath altogether with their rule book. And that leads us to our next point, which is the problem with religion. The problem with legalism, the problem with religion. Read verse 23 again with me. It says, one day Jesus, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were, were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, remember, we see, we've seen again and again and again that the Pharisees, they just refused to leave Jesus alone, Right? They just refuse to leave him alone. We tend to think of Pharisees as sort of like the fun police, right? The fun police who keep people from having a good time. Or, or we think of them as like the bad guys. Like if this was an old Western, then the scribes and the Pharisees, they would be wearing the big black hats. But really, Pharisees, they were just the religious fundamentalists of their day. And just like the religious fundamentalists of our day, they actually started off with a good thing. They started off with a really good desire. They started off with a passion for holiness, which is actually something that our generation today just does not seem to care enough about. They had this burning desire to live for God's glory in all things. But what happened is that they took this good desire, this good desire to be faithful and holy, and they went all OCD with it where they created extra rules to make extra sure that they were extra holy. And so, for example, the law of God in the Old Testament, the Torah, said to remember, was like a, a number of, a collection of laws. And the, and the Pharisees and their scribes, they created this extra rule book with 1,500 extra laws called the Mishnah. And in the Torah, in the Old Testament law, all God said was to remember to rest from work one day and seven. And so the Pharisees, they took that law and they added to that and they created 39 categories to define for themselves what exactly constitutes work. And so one rule was 
you don't hunt for food, which kind of seems reasonable, right? Like if you're trying to take a step back and, and, and rest. But then they had other rules like, like they had a rule that you can't tie a knot or you can't make more than one stitch. Like one stitch is okay, but you better not do two, right? Or you, you can't write more than one letter. And I'm not saying like write more than one like full letter to a friend. I'm saying like a single letter. Like you can write A, but you better not write B, right? Uh, and you couldn't erase more than one letter. You couldn't even put a fire out. If your house was on fire, you couldn't put it out. That was considered forbidden work. The Pharisees, they obsessed over the details. And anytime you obsess and get sort of bent out of shape over something, you start to find your identity in that thing. You start to find your identity in that thing. And so the Pharisees, they found their identity. They found their sense of value and their sense of worth and how well they kept their rule book. They missed the forest for the trees. And this is why they're coming after Jesus. This is why they're criticizing him. You see, Christ was doing a brand new thing. He was doing a new thing, a different thing that threatened their old thing. He was a threat to their influence. He was a threat to their influence, their influence as sort of the religious elite of the day. And so that's why they had it out for Jesus. They had it out for him. And see, that's what religious moralism does. That's what salvation by religion does. It pits you against Jesus. Religion doesn't save it kills. And that might sound odd for like a pastor to say, right? But, but I want you to get this point. Religion in and of itself is the enemy of Jesus and his saving work. Now, James says pure religion is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And so there is a sense into which like this word religion, there, there are healthy, good forms of it. But what we're talking about is not religion that comes out of faith in Christ, not religion that comes out of the Spirit, but religion by itself, religion in and of itself. So we're talking like bad religion, like, like the band, right? Like bad religion is when you obsess over the details, when you live by the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. It's when you live out of devotion to the law itself, not out of devotion for, for God and love for people. It's about earning salvation, earning your, your sense of rightness, salvation by what you do rather than receiving it because of what Jesus has done. And so I want you to check out now how Jesus slyly confronts them on their sort of grand adventure in missing the point. Read how he responds in verse 25. It says, now he, Jesus, said to them, have you ever read what David did, King David, when he was in need and was hungry, he and those that were with him, remember how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat, and he also gave it to those who were with him. So here's the point that Jesus is making here. Jesus is saying, Look, you guys, you have this goof. You, you, he's saying you guys have this goofy, these Pharisees, you have this goofy list 
and you're, where you're obsessed with defining works so that people aren't even allowed to put out a fire on the Sabbath because you define that as work. And he says, look, we're, we're not even going to get to your list just yet. Let's go to the scriptures, and, and I want you to see something in the scriptures, in the word of God. And he says, remember in 1 Samuel, he tells a story about King David. He's saying, Jesus says to them, remember in 1 Samuel when like King Saul, when he went nuts and went after David, and King David, or the, the guy who would be eventually King David and his men, they're on the run and they're in need and they're starving and they go to hide out in the tabernacle and they find this stash of ritual bread that only priests were allowed to eat. It was sacred bread and yet they feast on it. And Jesus is saying, remember that moment and remember how God never condemned David for doing that? Remember how we never condemned the priest for allowing it? This is brilliant what Jesus is doing here. Because, you see, it would have been enough for Jesus to say, get your silly rule book, your silly Mishnah out of here. You know that the Torah, God's law, just says, keep the Sabbath holy. Get that extra fluff out of here. Like, he could have just said that. He could have settled the issue with that, but instead he brings up David. It's his way of saying, look, I am the newer and better David. If that was allowed for David, then all the more that should be allowed for me and my men. I'm the true king you've been waiting for. And so if that was okay for David, then how much more for me and my disciples? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is also arguing that human need Human need always trumps ceremonial requirement. He points out to them, look, the point of the Sabbath is about restoration. The point of the Sabbath is about renewal. It's not about rules. It's about renewal. And if you miss that, then you've lost the point. You see, the Pharisees, they're like someone who takes music theory class but never plays music. Somebody who obsesses over the proper arrangement of black notes on a white sheet of paper on a page of sheet music, but just never enjoys the beauty of actually playing notes in symphony. Religion is that kind of foolish. It not only misses the point, it misses the beauty of it all. I want us to do a little mental sort of exercise here. I want you to consider a few signs that maybe you might have like a little Pharisee in, in you, all right? So imagine this is like some BuzzFeed article, right? Like uh, seven, how many do I have here? Like six signs that you might be a Pharisee, all right? I want you to make a mental note of which one of these applies to you. And so one, they're not gonna be on the screen here, but uh, so j just listen, you might have some Phariseeism tendencies if, if one, you just obsess with the rules. You obsess with the rules, where you see extra biblical rules as sort of the guardian of right and wrong, as sort of the guardian of what is holy and unholy. Number two, you're quick to criticize others, maybe slow to compliment them in their growth. Number three, you wish people were more like you. You wish people were more like you. Number four, you see the bad or the not good enough in every single situation and you never see, you never celebrate the good or the beautiful. Number five, you eat, you don't eat or drink with people who are far from God. That's what Jesus did not too much earlier before this. 
You don't eat or drink with people who are far from God because of how that might appear, right? Jesus was accused of being both a glutton, glutton and a drunkard. Number six, you hold yourself to a higher standard than Jesus himself. And the point in this list, hopefully the point you got, is that there's a little legalistic Pharisee in all of us, right? Or if you heard that list and you're only thinking about someone else who looks like this, then that, that just tells me that you have it bad, right? That you've got a bad case of it. Ask yourself, in what ways, in what ways are you obsessing over the details and that it's getting in the way of your delight? In what ways are you obsessing over rules of religion that it's getting in the way of your joy in Jesus? Religious legalism, it's like yeast. It grows and it just expands and it grows some more until it infects the whole batch. It affects the whole heart. Don't let it get a grip on you. Don't let it get a grip on you. I want to be clear that I'm, what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't pursue holiness. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue holiness. We absolutely should pursue holiness. We absolutely should pursue our growth and sanctification by word and by spirit. I'm not saying that you don't create boundaries that are helpful in your own pursuit of glorifying God in your life. But what I am saying is that those things, those rules, those boundaries, they don't save you. They're not your savior. They're not the determining factor of who's in and who's out. They don't save you. That job is already taken. And that brings us to our last point. Oh, I did think of a P. I forgot I added this last night. The principle of resting in Jesus. I forgot to change the other slide. <laughs> uh, it was a long night. So, <clears throat> number three, the principle of resting in Jesus. Read verse 27 with me. It says, He, Jesus, said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying here that He is the one. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying He's the one who created the Sabbath. He's the one who gave it its meaning. In other words, Jesus is saying that he is the creator God. He is God. He's the maker, the beginning and the end, the infinitely transcendent one. He's the one who made this world by the sheer power of his voice, and he now holds it together and sustains it by the sheer power of his will. And so when Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying that he is all this, he's the creator, but he's also saying, I'm also the rest that you need. I'm not only the one who, who, who commands you to rest, I am that rest that you need. I am the deep rest of the soul. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you peace. I will restore your soul, make you whole again. Look now at chapter 3 with me. The story continues. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue. And there was a man there with a withered hand, a crippled hand. And they, 
They all watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to them, the rest of them, now is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Which is brilliant because it's like, no, who's going to say to do harm, right? He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Really quick, you got to love how he's just constantly destroying their assumptions of how things work. Right? We said at the beginning, Jesus is constantly destroying their assumptions about who he is and how he works. He just leaves them speechless. They were silent. Verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now, this man stretches his crippled hand out in faith, and his hand is completely worth or is completely restored. That's worth celebrating, right? That's wonderful. Like, who can be against this? But look at verse 6. It says, The Pharisees, though, they now went out. And they immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him about how to destroy him, about how to destroy Jesus. There's a big irony in these verses right here. The Pharisees, they're accusing Jesus of working on the Sabbath by healing this man, by making him whole again, by restoring him. But then in their anger, because of how he kind of showed them up, in their anger, they go and they hunt down the Herodians on the Sabbath to plot his death. And for the record, holding counsel to plot someone's death is both work and murder, right? So two commandments, right? Work and murder. And the last verse is a chilling summary of really one of the main things that we see, main themes that we see in the New Testament. Verse 6, read it again with me. It says, the Pharisees... They went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. And what this shows us is that Christ and his gospel of grace is offensive to everybody. It's offensive to all. You see, because what's shocking in that, in that verse is that the Herodians and the Pharisees, they were actually enemies with one another. They were natural enemies. They were political enemies. Like the Pharisees, they saw the Herodians as sort of the puppets of Herod, who was their oppressor. They saw the Herodians as puppets of Herod and of Rome, who were bent on destroying Israel's culture, denying the old Jewish approach to truth and and beauty for the sake of just pleasing the, the Greek culture. The Herodians, on the other hand, they, they saw the Pharisees as sort of the moral bigots trying to keep the nation from progress. And so these two groups, they resented one another. They clashed against one another. And yet here, they find a common enemy in Jesus. They find a common enemy in Jesus. They both want to get rid of him. Why? Why do they do that? Why do they both want to get rid of him? It's because the gospel is neither moralism or relativism. 
The gospel is neither moralism nor is it relativism. It's neither squarely about traditional values nor is it squarely about progressive values. It kind of transcends both. It transcends both religion and irreligion. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you sort of placed your faith in your religious work and sort of this special code of conduct, like the Pharisees. Are you looking to your own performance for your acceptance before God? And if you are, Jesus would say, repent. Repent of your legalism. Or maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you've placed your, your faith in and really yourself in your own self-discovery or in your own approach to truth like the Herodians did. If the Pharisees were salvation by following your duty, then this would be salvation by following your desires. And to you, Jesus would say, you need to humble yourself too. Jesus would say that he is the truer and better way than irreligion too. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of Sabbath rest, and that is good news for the Herodian. It's good news for the Pharisee. It's good news for the disciple, for all of us. It's an invitation to find true and lasting rest in the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ in his cross and in his resurrection. The book of Deuteronomy says that the Sabbath is both a day to, to rest from our work, but it's also a, a day to, to, to remember God's saving work. And that is why on this side of the new covenant, we gather as God's people to worship and celebrate the one who gave his life for sinners like us. To celebrate the good news that Jesus is our ultimate Sabbath rest and that in him we find lasting wholeness. In him we find ultimate renewal. Christ healed the man with the withered hand by telling him to stretch out his hand in faith. And Jesus Christ himself would eventually get his whole body stretched out on a cross to heal us from our sin. It costs this man with the shriveled hand, it cost him nothing and it cost us nothing, only faith, which is itself a gift. But to Jesus, to Jesus, this kind of rest, this everlasting rest, it cost him everything. And at the cross, Christ declared, it is finished. He said, it is finished. He was saying, I'm putting an end to your vain pursuits of trying to earn your way in. He put salvation by religion to rest so that we can find our true rest, our true righteousness in him. He lived the life that we failed to live and died the death that we deserve to die that, so that through faith in him, you can have confidence that God is satisfied with you because he is satisfied in the saving work of his son. That is good news for us this morning. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. 
If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.